This is Death Watch, the monthly podcast where we eulogize one of the greats who has recently passed by watching some of their work that we weren't previously familiar with. My name is Matt Brown. I've got a cold coming on. I am Matthew Price, and I've got Sunshine. my clothes coming off. No, I have. I don't know. I couldn't follow it. I couldn't. <laughs> There's no way to go with that. Just like if you hear my voice become increasingly gravelly yeah. and, and baroque yeah. as the show goes and, on. And frankly, seductive. That's correct. I, I mean, that's that happens anyway. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, we're recording you, this episode. You on... bring the sex, and I bring <laughs> the rock and the, roll. The rock and roll. <laughs> the cookies. <laughs> I bring the cookies. We're recording this episode on June 23rd, 2019. Uh, Joss Whedon's birthday. That's an auspicious date in the history of our podcasting relationship. Also Pride. It's also the Pride Parade here in uh, Toronto. And this will be in your feed on Friday the 28th of June. Uh, we had a strange month in that while we have not spent the time exactly hoping that someone unique and important would die, it did not pass unnoticed that for the intents and purposes of our show, nobody did. Uh, so we're circling back <laughs> to a person who died. Not really, that the, listen, we're going to do roll call and all of those. Yeah, people are I was going to say, like, yeah. you're really setting me up to be like, here's some fucks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're circling back to a person who died earlier in the year. And we actually, I believe, eulogized on a previous yeah. roll call. Yeah. Uh, that's B movie director Larry Cohen, who died in uh, March. So check out our April episode if you want to hear uh, those thoughts. But today I will be watching uh, God Told Me To, and I believe you watched Black Caesar. I watched uh, both Black Caesar and uh, and uh, Hell Up in Harlem. Brilliant. But I would, I think I want to talk about Black Caesar. Okay. I know you're. We'll t- maybe we'll talk about both. Yeah, we can talk about Hell Up in Harlem. Is is uh, something you you have a a soft a fond I do place for it. Correct? I do have okay. a fond. I have a fond place for it. Okay. Yeah. Who says black people can't swim? <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, but before we do that, here it comes. Yeah, roll here comes call. roll call. So now that you've pre-qualified Roll Call, which, by the way, is, of course, the uh, the regular feature on our show where we um, catch up on everyone else who has passed from the time that we last recorded. Yeah. Um, and now that you've set me up to uh, basically yeah. go through an entire Roll Call of people that apparently neither of us found significant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just they've got to be people who've made movies. Yeah. People who have made yeah. movies that we haven't seen. Yeah. And even if they haven't specifically made movies like George W. Bush, we need, we need something that we feel strongly yeah. enough about to talk about and it just felt like there was no one in this particular yeah. group that we personally felt strongly enough does not mean that these people are not exceptionally significant of course right. i'm not trying to knock these people i'm just saying and also there is another factor here which is i got to tell you in the average year we try as much as we're doing a white guy today we yeah. try to veer away from the white guys so Absolutely. white guy drops dead i don't immediately jump up and say death watch right and you yet know? we are doing we are talking about we a white, a white gentleman a white today that's correct but uh, you know, someone who I think, anyway, we'll talk anyway. about it. Uh, so let's go through the, uh, the, uh, the shortened uh, roll call that we have. Mm. Uh, first on this list is Murray Gell-Mann, Nobel Prize for Physics. He coined the word quark for that subatomic particle. Love it, which means he named which he quark. discovered. He named quark and yeah. the actual quark. Yeah. Um, Bill Buckner, who famously... Played for the Mets, let the ball roll between his legs during the World Series, <laughs> tossed the Mets, the World Series, uh, passed away. And then in staying in the world of sports, Bart Starr, quarterback uh, for, um, I believe, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful. Or no, maybe it was uh, maybe it was the Green Bay Packers. I don't know. I, I'm a very bad sports person. I don't do sports. But I knew that name, Bart Starr, the minute I mm-hmm. saw it. So 
uh, Louis Levi Oaks, who was... But wasn't there a Simpsons episode that they literally called Bart Starr, the one where he sees the comet that's going to come and kill Springfield? It's yes. named after Bart Starr? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's also a, a Buckner reference in, in The Simpsons or two, right? And in Seinfeld. Well, I mean, at this point, there's 30 seasons. Yeah. There's a reference to yeah. literally everything. The yes. Simpsons is an, yeah. an encyclopedia. Yeah. Uh, Louis Levi Oakes, who was the last surviving um, code talker, Canadian code talker, used in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, code talkers, the only code that had never been broken, was never broken. Yeah. Um, because their languages are so different mm-hmm. from anything else. Um, and he was, uh, like, well over 100. And the really interesting thing about him, even his family did not know anything about this until only a couple of years ago. He never talked about it. He mm. never told anyone. So he was only very recently honored because it was top secret. Mm-hmm. He basically, no one ever, he never said what he did. Right. Right. Uh, uh, this was this was strange to me. So Leon Redbone, uh, singer, uh, amazing singer. Are you familiar with Leon Redbone? No. Many appearances, but it was on The Muppet Show, was on lots of stuff in the 70s. Um, uh, played, used to, used to, play uh, like a sort of a jazz guitar and sit and 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 play in the style of someone much much older like I think my my assumption was that Leon Redbone had been a hundred years old since the 1970s mm-hmm. he's the don't get around much <laughs> you know that guy yeah yeah so he died he was only 69 which means he was like 25 wow when- <laughs> When he was like going on variety shows yeah. and pretending to be someone who had fallen out of time from the 1920s and 30s, right? Uh, Cl- oh, this is so sad and awful. Klaus von Bülow, <laughs> <laughs> just terrible. Okay, uh, <laughs> well-known murderer Klaus von Bülow. That's correct. And inspiration for Scar in The Lion King. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Everett Raymond Kinsler, uh, prolific comic and pulp artist of the 40s and 50s, primarily in, in, in interestingly, in, in comics, in Western and romance comics, which, of course, never get the same sort of appraisal or, or play that, that hero books do, but really very important genre in comics in terms of sales, mm-hmm. um, especially in the 40s and 50s, and then uh, did covers for pulps of all genres, um, all through that time period, so tons of pulp novels. But the really interesting thing about him was that he then went on to become America's preeminent po- uh, portrait artist. He he did over 1,200 portraits, including dozens and dozens that are in the National Portrait Gallery in wow. the U.S. Uh, like seven sitting presidents, in, insane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I thought that was sort of a, a really cool life lived. Um, civil rights activist and chef Leah Chase who uh, is primarily responsible for not only housing and feeding many, many people who, uh, freedom riders, people like that, who came to the South to try to help, but also is the person primarily responsible for the spread of Creole cuisine throughout America, like actually is the person that popularized New Orleans-style food. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Frank Lucas, any idea? Nope. Given that I'm going to talk about Hell Up in Harlem, Frank Lucas is the actual American Kingpin. Oh, right. Uh, the guy yeah, that the movie yeah, American yeah. Kingpin is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was, right. yeah. Uh, and then, again, another notable New Orleans um, uh, personage, Dr. John, passed away. 
Um, and I, I am speechless. All right. That's a, that's a killer. Uh, among many other things, Dr. John is, of course, the, the full inspiration for Dr. Teeth mm -hmm. in The Muppet Show. Um, it's been a very Muppety uh, it episode has. so far. It has. I, yeah. Maybe it's just me. Mm -hmm. um, Nani Griffin, who was one of the original hosts of Polka Dot Door. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I saw that, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bushwick Bill from the Ghetto Boys. Wait, wait, wait hold. Let's Sorry. pause the show for let's a second. Let's go back to Polka Dot Door. Uh, folks, do you know what Polka Dot Door is? Oh, yeah, let's talk about like, Polka Dot Door. if you're not from Ontario, do, does, that, does that get further than Ontario? I feel like is it, it goes across Canada on various... states? Definitely not the states. So, you know, you guys, everyone, if you are listening to us in the U.S., you have Sesame Street and, you know, Mr. Rogers, and these are all very important, but we... We had the Polka Dot Door. We, ha in Canada, yeah. have the Polka Dot Door, Mr. Dress Up, and the Friendly Giant, mm -hmm. which does not mean it was illegal to watch Sesame Street. We got no, that we too. we saw those too. But yeah. we but Canada has this wonderful tradition of children's television mm -hmm. that uh, I guess is kind of unknown outside the country. And the Polka yeah. Dot Door is a a playhouse style show where two hosts live in the playhouse. Yeah. That has a polka dot door that you enter and exit from. Yeah, and uh, and it's a, a wonderful, gentle show about day to day living and there's gaslighting. No, uh, there's no gaslighting <laughs> because no one expects the children not to understand the conceit of the show, which is that there's a character on the show named Pokeroo. Yep, that is clearly the male host of the show dressed up. Mm -hmm. And the running joke that all children are in on is that the male host of the show disappears quote-unquote, right when Pokeroo appears, and they go, ah, you always seem to miss Pokeroo. And we all yell at the television, even as two-year-olds, "He's it's him in the suit, and that's mm -hmm. what's funny. Mm -hmm. It's not gaslighting. Everyone I, knows. I, I think there's two ways to read that. No. I think there's two <laughs> no, ways there are to not. read that. No, there and are one not. one of them is that they're playing a horrible prank on the male host no. every single week. There's an inside joke, and that, that's what it is. That this guy yeah. uh, keeps yeah. missing the Pokeroo. Oh, my God. You had a twisted childhood. Uh, Bushwick Bill from the Ghetto Boys, who died like very young, 50, 51, something yeah. like that. Uh, uh, a pretty significant for me, anyway, screenwriter Bill Whitliff, who um, w sort of like became the modern uh, master of, of, like, of modern westerns. So he wrote the screenplays for Lonesome Dove, uh, The Black Stallion, mm. Legends of the Fall, um, also wrote Raggedy Man, also wrote Perfect Storm. Uh, for for Clooney and um, a really really solid, you know, craftsman mm -hmm. screenwriter. Um, I would say, especially in the case of Black Stallion, which is a, a script that has an entire act with no dialogue, that is a hard thing to write as a, as a screenwriter. Sure. And do it well, so um, actress Sylvia Miles, '70s icon, wonderful in Five Easy Pieces, many other sort of like uh, you know seminal films of the 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, Film director and noted rapist Franco Zeffirelli. Boy, did he ever. <sighs> Jesus. Yeah. It wasn't even under consideration for me that we would do a show about No, of him. course not. Right? Well, first of all. Screw him. Screw him. Yeah. He actually, his body of work is not particularly interesting. You know? Yeah. So not really. He, so what he made the Romeo and Juliet we all had to watch in high school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I honestly, you know, the high, if the high watermark is uh, the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Yeah. And it is. It Probably. is, yeah. It is. It's it's a decent shot mm -hmm. at Hamlet. Yep. Uh, but yeah, he's he's not worth it. Nope. Uh, Gloria Vanderbilt. She sure did. She did. Did you know she was Anderson Cooper's mom? Yes, I always did. I didn't yes. think I knew that until yeah. she died. Yeah. Um, I knew that before I knew that Anderson Cooper was gay. Wow. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> 
I uh, never didn't know Anderson Cooper. I mean, right, like, since, since I was born, that knowledge was just there. It was? Yeah. Wow, pretty good. Predated um, CNN, predated Anderson Cooper. Predated The Amazing Race. Yeah, that's right. Remember when Anderson Cooper hosted The Amazing Race? No. Yeah. Did he? Yeah. He was the original host before uh, Phil, Phil Keoghan? Yeah, yeah. Really? I think so. I don't know about that. He definitely hosted a, 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 a contest style show. Huh. Well before he huh. became the CNN anchor. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure it's Amazing Race. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, now came, we're in gonna, a, I came into a May Ray in season five, so what the we're hell We're going to get some mail. Yeah, let's um, get some mail. Uh, Canadian actor Sean McCann, star of uh, Night Heat. Night Heat. Remember Night Heat? No. Oh, that was a good show. <laughs> Night Heat's the show. It was a cop show uh, filmed on the streets of Toronto. That was the show where they, they had these stories where they would go and, like, throw a bunch of trash around in an alley to make it look like uh, an American city. Mm -hmm. And then they would take a lunch break. And when they came back, the city's cleanup crew would have cleaned up all the trash that they so carefully. That's strewed. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, that was one of the things that happened on the set of Night Heat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, composer and, and creative partner to Sukian Lee, uh, Adam Litovitz, um, uh, was reported missing. He, he died at 36. Oh, God. Um, That's what happened? I, I, yeah. saw the, I saw the report that he was missing. I didn't yeah, know he died. He, he passed away. Yeah. And they haven't said under. Like the circumstances are still not not public, but he he was missing and in and in trouble and being searched for and then recovered and mm. and dead. Uh, Peter Allen Fields, yeah, uh, writer primarily, I guess, associated with many different Star Trek iterations, right? Did he just write? next gen and DS Nine? Oh, okay. So um, didn't I thought he also wrote for the original series? No, no, no. Okay, so um, maybe you want to talk about this because I think it hit you maybe a bit. Yeah, harder. I mean, he's not. He's by no means sort of like he's not Ron Moore. Like he didn't write a hundred episodes. I think he wrote about ten, but right. he wrote. He kind of started with a couple of next gen episodes. Then he wrote the Inner Light, which isn't one of my favorites, but m many people count that as one of the best episodes of Next Gen. That's the one where Picard gets like mind probed by an alien probe, and he ends up living an entire life on an oh, alien yeah. planet. The one um, where the one that ruined all of Star Trek continuity thereafter for him, like, yeah. where you go, how is it possible this guy is still functioning? After yeah, that's that right. Episode, this man's right? hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's and yeah. and profoundly affected by whatever this is. How yeah. is he still going about his daily day? I, yeah. yeah, you can only really explain it if the idea is that basically, like to an extent, it becomes like a dream to him. Like his sure, his consciousness doesn't hold on to it quite as firmly as actual memories. But you're right. Um, then he uh, moves over to Deep Space Nine and does, uh, you know, I think probably still one of my top three. He probably did two of my top three episodes of Deep Space Nine, which is he does a duet in the first season, which is where Kira is interviewing the Cardassian war criminal yeah, and then finds out that he's not, um, where Harris Eulen gives, I think, one of the best performances I've ever seen. Um, and then in the sixth season, he does In the Pale Moonlight, which is the one where Cisco finally violates the, the, the laws of the, of the Federation to stage an attempted assassination of a Romulan ambassador like he basically goes over right. the dark side more right. morally so those are is those that the one that he tells in flashback yes that's yeah the one that that's he tells a in good flashback. One. yeah oh, yeah, oh, yeah. so like again fields it's not like he, he only wrote like a couple episodes a season but like the ones he wrote were fucking important he wrote the, the first mirror universe episode on deep space nine that went on to become like you know a running series on, that, on that show he wrote and and frankly one. is the whole first season of yeah. discovery yeah, absolutely. You know, like he wrote that it. episode where Dax reconnects with the Klingons of the original series, and they go on a mission together. Like he's, he, he, if you look up the ones he actually did, they were they were heavy hitters on that show. So I, you know, yeah. great writer, and a, and by all accounts, a really nice guy. Okay, that's that, and that's that, and and guys, that's that. That is roll call. Yeah, and I mean, I defy you to tell me who among those people we who, should have done an episode. Who is about. the overlook? Yeah. 
Yeah. No, it doesn't exist. Um, so I'm sure July is going to be terrible. Buckle up, guys. Yeah, like that's everyone right. you love, they're about yeah, to they're... be gone. That's oh, why I, like you and I would text each other occasionally and be like, "What are we going to do about the show?" And I was like, "I don't even want to like put a plan in place because the second I do, like George Lucas that's, will drop dead." That's right. You know, yeah, like yeah. I just I'm like, ah. yeah. can everyone please please protect Olivia De Havilland for yes. at least the next month? Absolutely. If anyone's yeah. got eyes on Betty White, just just keep, keep your her. eyes yeah. on Betty yeah. White. Don't let her go up and down any stairs. Clear the streets. That's right. <laughs> Just create a bubble around <laughs> Betty White. Um, okay, and you know what? The actually speaking of Betty White, um, I, one of my favorite comics, Paper Girls, is about to wrap up. It's a time mm-hmm. travel comic. It's Brian K. Vaughan. He started it in I think 2014. Okay, it's about to wrap up, and in his like second issue, he sent out a questionnaire that was like, "Who do you think will be dead by the time this comic <laughs> is <laughs> finished?" And I think the top three were like Stan Lee, right? Um, I can't remember who the second one was, but the third was Betty White. And he was like, Betty White is the only one that is still with us. You know, like, it was like, Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, anywho, enough also, of that morbid, morbid talk. That's right. But uh, we should definitely make some show T-shirts that say, who's the Overlook? Who's <laughs> the Overlook? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about Larry Cohen. Uh, we'll start with a little bio. So he was born in 1936, Manhattan. Grew up in the Bronx, hence the accent. Uh, and he went to City College for film studies. He is uh, reputed to have consumed movies at a breakneck pace when he was a child. He would try to get to two double features weekly, so four movies a week. He was particularly drawn to uh, crime thrillers and film noir and to the films of uh, Michael Curtiz. He uh, starts his professional career as a screenwriter for television in the 1950s. He goes on to shows like The Defenders and The Fugitive. Uh, in the 1960s, he migrates to writing screenplays for film. He starts with the screenplay for the sequel to The Magnificent Seven, The Return of the Seven. I don't believe until this moment I knew that there was a sequel yes. yeah. to The Magnificent Seven yep. starring Yul Brenner, but indeed there was. So we talk about how shameless Hollywood is now. Oh, it's please. always been. It's always it's been. It's always been. Do you know how many, I always use this example, but it's my favorite. Do you know how many Ma and Pa Kettle films there were? Like hundreds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. It's a miracle any original ideas have ever existed. Yeah. Uh, in the 1970s, he turns his sights on directing. He starts with uh, Bone, starring Yafit Koto. That's a comedy. Then he jumps into the burgeoning black exploitation genre with the two films that you're going to be talking about, uh, Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem. Yeah. Uh, both starring Fred Williamson. The latter, again, my pick for one of the better underseen black exploitation films of that era. Uh, in 74, he directs It's Alive, which is his first horror movie. He kind of, you know, stays in the horror fantasy science fiction frame for a lot of his career i didn't realize that it's alive sort of became a, a minor franchise it's a trilogy of films uh, he does the sequel and the, and the third one island of the alive yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right good one yeah. uh in the 80s he did cue the winged serpent and the stuff uh, which we've mentioned previously yeah. on the show i believe in our last roll call talking about him and then by the end of the century he's largely back into screenwriting with scripts for movies like uh, phone booth and cellular he also, this is interesting, sued 20th Century Fox when the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen film came out, claiming that it was his idea, that he pitched this idea of a rogues gallery of, of uh, major characters from century, fiction yeah, yeah. Uh, in the 1990s, and Moore's comic doesn't get published until 1999, so he, he claims that it was his idea. And I'm just like, imagine wanting to get in on that bandwagon. The League of Extraordinary yeah, Gentlemen, yeah. which everyone knew was going to be a colossal turkey, yeah. was indeed and a also, colossal turkey. Imagine trying to claim prior art on... Alan Moore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, do you want to die today? Yeah. <laughs> Is that your plan? Yeah. Yeah. Alan that Moore shows dude up again. will get on a plane. That's right. He will talk to you in person. That's it's not right. good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so finally, Larry Cohen died on March 23rd in Beverly Hills at the age of 82. 
so I think we should probably start with your film since they come first chronologically, unless you're sure. dying to get into God Told Me To. No, but I am. I mean, yes, because I right. think that's the movie I think is my favorite. But uh, it was his best reviewed. That's overall. interesting because yeah. I really like. We'll talk about it. But, yeah. Uh, so I went into I. So you told me to watch Hell Up in Harlem. Yeah. Which I fully intended to do, but but seeing that it was a sequel, I felt like, well, I should really watch Black Caesar first. So you can understand what's going on. So that on. I can at least, not even understand, but just at least have the context of how people were, quote unquote, meant to see this, right? Sure. So my intention was to, to call it for Hell Up in Harlem, but Black Caesar has some stuff in it, and I really want to talk about it. Okay. So- um, It has been, I want to say, 20 years since okay. I've seen it. Okay. So bear with me. So here's the thing. I was I was mostly enjoying it. It's it's definitely a movie made by someone who doesn't have a huge amount of budget and isn't necessarily working with the best actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think you could fairly say this is a problem uh, that you kind of have to embrace with a lot of black exploitation that they're not getting a lot of takes. Mm-hmm. They're not working with a lot of great talent. These films are not considered in any way important. And they're they're not necessarily even being shot with experienced crews, and so you get a lot of like weirdly edited dialogue scenes yeah. where you're trying to cut around, sort of like bad line reads or just like you know this is all the information, this is all the the takes they have, and they're doing the best they can. So whatever, I can put up with that. But it's definitely like Black Caesar, especially like really feels like amateur hour in terms of that. Yeah. Um, uh, but the story's pretty good, and it's very clearly just let's take a, a movie for let's take Little Caesar from mm-hmm. the 1930s and just rewrite it for now. It has a great opening prologue where they set the thing starts like sort of 15 years earlier, where the main character is a teenager, um, shoe shine artist, except not really. Clearly, just using that as a cover so that he can do little jobs for the mob because mm-hmm. he's a crime minded, very enterprising young man and he uh he traps a guy on the street it's quite a good sequence guy comes out and he says can i shine your shoes and it's all a ruse to trap the guy so someone can walk over and assassinate him yeah and uh, and really like well shot and sort of choreographed and feels like this is going to be a movie that is uh you know despite its shortcomings is actually pretty effective right right um the the problem is yes that uh at about the two-thirds mark, and for no reason that I can understand, either narratively or because of the character or anything else, he rapes his girlfriend mm-hmm. pretty fucking hard. Yep. They never come back to it. He never, ever provides any defense or explanation or justification, and it just lays there in the middle of the movie and poisons the entire outing. Yep. And it is awful and inexcusable. Mm-hmm. And I am the first person to say, don't judge things from the past by today's standards, but there is no narrative justification for this thing to be, he is not showing me anything about the character that even tracks to the character. Yeah. It's gross. Yep. And made me really uncomfortable and actually really angry that no one seemingly talks about it I watched King Cohen, which is this entire documentary about Larry Cohen. Never mention it. Right. Don't talk. Like, it's as if it didn't, it's as if he didn't write what is a completely pro rape scene of his hero into a movie. Mm-hmm. And then no one m- mentions this about him ever. Yeah. What the fuck is that? I don't know. 
Like that, it's it actually made me kind of mad. Yeah. So anyway, that's right, where so. it's, it's it's a weird like I, I, you're right like it's very difficult to look back at something 50 years ago and be like try to get into the head of the people that did it. Yeah. You know, but what what can you say other than that it was an exploitation movie and they probably just thought that was a great idea and you're like, "Well, fuck. You thought that was a great idea?" Yeah. There's no reason it doesn't help the character of the the woman he's with. It's not it's not telegraphed ahead of time. She's not having big problems with him necessarily. And then suddenly she is, and she's like, I need some time, and I don't want to have sex with you right now. And mm-hmm. he holds her down. And it goes on really long. Like, it's – and it's just – it's awful. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I feel like there's so much love for this guy and and for what he was able to do. And, and again, if I didn't know this scene existed, I'd be right there with everybody else. When you look at everything else, he isn't this type of – filmmaker too much right and it isn't it isn't something i particularly thought about him being especially misogynist or especially no rapey or whatever it's just never it's not in any of his other films and like i just i don't get it and we have to ask the question i mean look i don't want to forensically go down this road because who fucking knows but it's like you have to ask the question you know like given the culture of filmmaking as we are aware of it yeah you know the fact that he was he just aimlessly threw this in there. It's either a one-off fuck up, or it's part of his whole thing, man. And he just just because yeah. it doesn't work into yeah. another film doesn't mean he's not like no. totally uh, okay with it. It's it's really hard. It's hard to figure those kinds of things out. After yeah, the fact. it is, and it's especially given the you know in that era there was so much more uh, not necessarily admissibility around rape, although there was, but like that whole idea of uh, a woman saying no might not be saying no. Right, like no doesn't necessarily mean right, no. right. and it's like that. It was, it's you know, right. it's a, but it's he a doesn't coded talk aspect of yeah, filmmaking. Yeah, but he know? doesn't talk her into it, and she comes around. No, of course, she protests through the entire scene and is crying. It's it's really terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I part of it is I think, uh, you know, it's such a low budget movie made for American International, and he is both the writer and the director and the producer of the film. So yeah. if you're going to argue auteur, auteur theory, this is kind of the guy to argue it for, mm-hmm. right? He's an outsider filmmaker making this movie on his own recognizance, presumably with Final Cut. Yeah. Right? Why Why is this there? What I just, I would love to get some clarity on this because yeah. it made it really hard to watch Hell Up in Harlem. And I mean, I go back to it's probably just exploitation, right? Like it's just about the idea of putting as many quote-unquote titillating things into a film as you can. Yeah. And, you know, being like he could have thrown a dart at a dartboard for all we know and been like, yeah. oh, maybe it's yeah. a rape. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Anyway. Like there's, there is a, there's a scene in the movie that I watched where a woman is completely naked throughout for reasons that I would call... Yeah, but I almost yeah exactly. But like completely naked, I can be I'm okay with. But this was not anyway. No, but you know made, what I mean. Like yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, idea yeah. that this guy like made his living in B movies, and it's just like that. There was always that added impetus to add more. You yeah, know. yeah. Anyway, I don't want to sandbag this whole conversation. No, no, no. I sandbag just it. I don't give a fuck. I just it was so shocking to me because I'd seen so many other films of his, and mm-hmm. they're mostly like really fun and silly and it was just it was hard yeah um and uh anyway uh that that was that was kind of the the biggest thing i wanted to talk about is that you know going into this i was like completely unproblematic guy you know (laughs) (laughs) like who who can hate larry cohen i'm like oh damn it it's me i hate larry cohen god damn it yeah yeah so so it's yeah i don't know i don't know where i I don't really have a point to make other than that it was just it was tough 
Yeah, and that's that's the reality of the legacy of filmmaking we have to deal with. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, there are no that when problematic we, guys. Yeah, and you know we talk about. I mean, our tagline for the show is "We eulogize the greats," and it's you know we have to. I think I think it's important to remember like people make gigantic mistakes. Yes, constantly. And so I guess the question becomes: Do you reduce a person to their worst mistake, or? Do you somehow, you know, put it in line or somehow compartmentalize it? Hell, man, I just, at times like this, I spend my time hoping that is his worst mistake. Yeah, you fair. You know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, who fucking yeah. knows what this guy did? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, fair. Um, all right, well, let's talk about, God. maybe God told him to. Hey. Hey. Nice, there's an idea. Nice tie back. Thanks. So, yeah. Uh, like I said, best reviewed film with a whopping 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> uh, Never a guy that was going to get to 100%. No. That's, you know. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning. So his films were generally, you know, poorly reviewed or mixed. Yeah, mixed. Yeah. Um, he obviously became more. They 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 were reappraised fondly as cult classics. Yeah. But like we we again we're talking about a B movie, an exploitationist, a genre guy, and with this, you know, it's funny. I I I said this movie is is not what I would call particularly good, but randomly and with unnerving regularity, it's great. Yes. Like there there's. Yes. There are a lot of things in here that you were just like, holy shit. You know, like it's yeah. a, it's a very strong idea for a movie. It is. Uh, in which this this uh cop who turns out to be kind of a closet super Catholic, like he is right. He it reminded me a lot of Daredevil, where it's this idea that like really this guy's biggest enemy is how immensely he grapples with his own faith, with his relationship with yeah. God. Yeah. Um, anyway, so super Catholic cop. Um, and then this series of uncannily effective murders start happening in the city by random people who all claim that God told them to do it. Um, so, and you think it's a mass psychosis? It's yeah, a guy. Like, what the fuck? It's is a guy. It? It's on? a guy pretending. That's yeah. my favorite thing about this movie. And I guess we're gonna. Are we gonna spoil it? Well, I was gonna say. So, yeah. you know, spoilers from here because why the fuck not? Yeah. I mean, this. <laughs> so here's. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, you go ahead. I just. That's what I loved about it so much is yeah. that it's like, well, there's a plausible explanation for this. There's obviously like a reasonable explanation. Yeah. And then he goes, yeah, but actually, it's the thing that we say is happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Alien gods. Yeah had uh, inseminated potentially a variety of women about 35 years ago, 33 if I'm not mistaken, to right. go fully biblical on this shit. One of them is Richard Lynch, who is essentially a low-rent David Bowie, as an androgyne alien demon who is mind-controlling these people. He's got a vulva on his chest, a separating vulva on yeah. his chest. Yeah. And he is lit incredibly from within yeah. Yeah. throughout the entire, yeah. in, in what I can only describe as the best low budget special effect I have ever seen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he, yeah. And yeah. he actually is God essentially yeah. telling them to do yeah. things. And and it yeah. turns out then, and that's, we're, we're only halfway there, friends. Yes. Because <laughs> then, then it turns out that the cop is also one of them. And right. what the, what the uh, vulva demon wants to do is mate with the cop. To create a super, super race, race of half alien <laughs> ah! demon god creatures who yeah. will take over the earth. It's like, oh, you went all the way there. Yeah. All yeah. the way there. Yeah. And that's what's that's why it's my favorite one. Because it's it's the only time I've I've seen him. And it very rarely do I ever see any filmmaker so fully commit to an idea. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's really neat because like the first half of the movie genuinely, I think, does wrestle with some, you know interesting theological ideas yeah you know one of my my uh 
favorites is one of the guys who this guy's literally just he shot his entire family and he explains in detail and it is you know I don't I'm I've been watching movies a long time I got to be honest I don't get scared or even unnerved in movies very much anymore I got goddamn good and freaked out watching this thing like there were moments where I was like yeah. so there's a scene where this guy one of the guys is he's explaining how he how and why he shot his entire family and he's completely blissful about the entire experience he's just like. You know, I, I I was laughing. I was having a great time. You know, like it, yeah. Yeah, everything yeah. about it felt so so right. And then he says to to this believer, he says, "Sacrifices to your God are nothing new. Why are you looking at me as though I were the first one? Uh, life doesn't matter, not on this earth." And I was like, "Oh man, that is putting the fucking gears to the entire concept of the redeemed afterlife and yeah. the stakes yeah. of human existence on earth. Yeah. Like kind of the fundamental question of Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you know, like the first half of the movie is full of." Stuff like that, and then yeah. it turns into a fucking batshit fantasy the, science fiction horror movie. Honestly, the only thing I compare I can compare it to is the first season of True Detective. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. And you kind of actually <laughs> right? wish that the first season of True Detective had, had gone, gone for there. it. Had, yeah, had gone for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the only difference is that the first season of True Detective actually goes, "Oh no, it's very prosaic." Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're like, "You had a chance." You had it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I will close with a few fun facts. Fun okay. fact number one. Yes. There is a uh, a St. Patrick's Day parade sequence that becomes one of the murders. Yes. Which, A, Has. I strongly believe influences the Dark Knight a hundred percent. The Heath Ledger Joker is yes. in the is in the crowd and starts shooting people. Yes. B. The guy who's in the crowd and starts shooting people dressed as a cop is Andy Kaufman. Is Andy Kaufman? Which I was, I literally I recognized him immediately, and I was so convinced that I was wrong that I paused the movie. No, and, and you're it like, up. is that? It Wait a minute. Possibly yep. be Andy yeah. Kaufman. It no, him. it is. Yep. It's Andy Kaufman. Yeah. And um, thing two, Robert Forster was originally cast in the lead role. A few days into filming, he and Cohen. Uh, have a big argument falling out. Sure, Forster yeah. quit. Forster said of Cohen, I only bring this up because it's always interesting to know a little bit of this stuff. Yeah. He says that Cohen was one of those guys who yelled a lot on the set, and I said, hey, this isn't for me. Let me out of here. And he says, we parted from First of all, when, it, when I read that quote, I could hear Robert Forster saying it. Hey, yeah. this isn't for me. Let me out of here. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, but, yeah. but also, like, that's worth knowing that Cohen may have been a high-energy presence, as we say, on the set. And then finally, uh, Bernard Herrmann w uh, was supposed to do the score. That's right, because uh, he had done the score for It's Alive. Uh, that's right. So he had just and, done one. And it was one of his last. Yeah. yeah. So he has just done the score for Taxi Driver, and he, he saw the first cut of this movie. Uh, and then, according to Cohen, he died 15 hours after he saw the first cut. Yeah. yeah. And started making his notes. Can I go back to the parade scene for Please. a second? Please. That's not uh, a staged scene. That's a fucking parade. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's the fucking parade. That's an actual parade yeah. that he just dressed. He had uh, Andy Kaufman impersonating a police officer, which is absolutely something that can get your ass landed in jail. Yeah. Just sidle up to the parade. Yep. And they posed as a news crew and shot that sequence. Yep. Everyone involved could have been in prison. Absolutely. Immediately. Yeah. No permits. No nothing. Yeah. He's... He's not a cop pretending to be one. He's got on a costume from Central Casting. Yeah. And they're shooting this sequence. And the whole time, Kaufman knows that if anybody breaks or says anything, uh, there's a hundred cops yeah. all around. Anyway, yeah. just incredible. Well, that's one of the things. I mean, like, you know, one of the reasons I like Hell Up in Harlem, one of the reasons I liked this, one of the reasons I really like Q, um, I always admire Cohen's ability to get enormous production value for right. free. 
Right. You know, he right. knows how to shoot New York. He knows how right. to shoot crowds. He knows how to get things that make it look like he had a huge budget when he's actually just stealing the shit. As soon as the parade starts, right. I know it is not a staged sequence. I know he's run and gunning it. I'm very impressed. Yeah. Um, it makes me wonder if they run and gunned the parade in The Fugitive. They probably didn't because yeah. those guys had money. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it's it's there's there's tons of street scenes in Black Caesar and Help in Harlem where like people are being shot on the street and you can see from the people around them. Yeah. They don't know what movie is happening. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Right, they're just like, did that guy fall down? What's yeah. going on over there? Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first scene of this one is a lot of people being gunned down in the streets of New York, and yeah, same thing. Like they're on long lens cameras. They people just put are just actors falling. in the fucking crowd, and yeah. people are doing what are actually quite terrible, uh, falls. you know, self yeah, yeah. self pulls on the yeah. falls. You yeah. know, they they don't yeah. look some. Most of them don't look good, but do, that doesn't matter. Again, like he's just he he had a real talent for finding ways to shoot kinetically and create drama and tension with kind of found resources. And, you know, for whatever else would, may have been wrong with the guy, I admire that, you know? Like, there's there are B-movie directors who are B-movie directors because they're not that great. Yeah. And there are B-movie directors who are well, who are punching way above their weight yeah. and are, like, consistently delivering visual results, and I think Cohen was one of those guys. Right on. All right. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave comments at modernsuperior.com or on our Twitter, which is DeathWatchPod, or on our letterbox, which nobody ever visits. And boy, we would love it if you would visit the letterbox. Please visit the letterbox. And I, Come I, on by. Yeah, DeathWatchPod is there as well. And I mean, I, God knows I rarely visit, and I run the damn thing. But nonetheless, if someone were on there, I'd be thrilled. Sure. Um, but yeah, we'll, uh, we will announce our July candidate if and when that person makes themselves known to us. And uh, we will be back on the last Friday of July with our next episode. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate all of you. And uh, happy Pride. Yeah? yeah? Anything else? No, we're good. This episode has been brought to you by the Modern Superior Podcast Network. <laughs>